Take your Bibles, please, and head with me over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Thank you so much for getting those mics out of the way so I don't fall over them again. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been starting a series or going through a series on the book of Acts. And this morning we want to launch into chapter 2. If you follow along as I begin reading with chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under earth. Now when they, this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled and said one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we are born? And then it lists a whole bunch of different tongues. And we jump down verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? Others mocked, said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter... Standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, hearken to my words. And he goes on and gives the first sermon, which we'll talk about tonight. But let's pick up just that section that we just read about. It's that time of Pentecost where they're gathered together. It's days, weeks after Jesus Christ has has died. And there's one of these feasts that come up. The Pentecost, the feast that we'll talk about in a second, give a little bit more. And it's one of those several feasts that the Jews had that were required that everyone who lives within 20 miles, uh, roughly, uh, they didn't use mileage, but in our terms, about 20 miles of Jerusalem, they had to come and they had to be there at that feast. And they had to show up. But then as well, those who lived in Galilee and other regions, they had to come to three of the major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. And so Pentecost was one that would also bring thousands of other people, which means that when we're reading this section, when it says there was a multitude of Jews from all over, we're talking hundreds of thousands. It is estimated that Jerusalem could easily go into 2 million to 3 million people at this time, historically. So we're talking a vast number of people from all over the known world. So there have been all these pilgrims coming to visit Jerusalem. Well, it's on that day that all of a sudden the disciples had been remaining there in Jerusalem waiting now the last few weeks. Jesus had said after he's ascended, actually a few days, 10 days, he had said go into Jerusalem and wait in the upper room. And so there was at least the 11, they've chosen the 12 that we talked about last week, and they're there in the upper room, and maybe others, but 120 in total would come together, that place or another place, and they would be there, and they're in one accord. And it says that they, in chapter 2, it says now they were in the house. The word for house is also translated temple. So could they have been at the temple in one of those rooms along the outer side called Solomon's Porch, which would be much larger and could house a bigger group of people? That's a possibility. And so they're there, they're dead at that spot, and then all these people are there. They're seeing all these great crowds, and that's when God visits them in the form of the Holy Spirit. That God comes, and it becomes this fantastic day in church history that we call Pentecost. What do we know about that? What do we know about what happened then? 
And how does it apply to us today? So let me just hit four different points. One is that Pentecost was the day that God followed an ancient calendar in order to bring out his redemptive plan. Those big phrases simply means God had a purpose to pick Pentecost. So let's back up. Let's do just a little bit of Bible study. Remember how the disciples are walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Jesus was showing them from the Old Testament how everything pointed to him. That happened in the sacrifices. That happened in the furniture. It happened as well in the feast days. You remember the one most famous feast day. It's called the Passover. What does it celebrate? What event do they look back when they celebrate the Passover? The deliverance from where? From Egypt. And remember how when they were delivered from Egypt that through the Red Sea, what did they have to do the night before? They had to put lamb's blood around the door and then what would the, if we say it this way, what would the death angel do? He would pass over. He would not inflict anything. So they would, every year, they would celebrate this and they would get together celebrating God's, God's deliverance and part of the meal that they would, they would have would be with unleavened bread so that they were getting the idea that we're going to be going on a trip and remember that. The lamb would be sacrificed the evening before. So by the time Jesus comes on, the scene, what would happen is Sabbath is going to be on that Sabbath or Saturday when they'd have Passover. They, the lamb would be slain on the Friday beforehand and be, be, have his blood shed. And so what happens is it pictures Jesus Christ. You know this. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Even in Corinthians it's talking about purge out the old leaven. You've been unleavened. Christ is our Passover. So the festivities of Passover were pointing to Jesus. The disciples got this. They were understanding that. Then there was another feast that would happen the Sunday after Passover. So Friday... Christ was killed like that Passover lamb. You have Passover, and then on Sunday they would celebrate the feast of the first fruits. Do you remember what the first fruits was all about? Anybody remember? The priest would take, they would, this was the first day of the wheat harvest. The, they would take some of that bundle of wheat or sheave and they would wave it before the Lord. And you have all these different strands. And the idea was we're thanking God on that Sunday after Passover, we're thanking God because God has given us this harvest, the first fruits. He's given us something that's going to indicate that this very beginning of the, of the season, there's going to be more to follow. We're going to, we have the very first of the, of, the, of the wheat and we're waving it with the expectation, God, you're going to send even more over the next few weeks. Well, Jesus Christ is going to be called the first fruits of our resurrection. That on that day, on that Sunday, that they celebrated this first fruits, Jesus rises to indicate the idea is there's going to be more rising in the future. Us, we're going to be resurrected. Then they would go that 50 days after Passover, which was again on a Sunday. It's interesting that the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit both happen on a Sunday which explains why we worship on Sundays, not the Jewish holiday of the Sabbath. So what happens is you get the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was that 50 days after on that Sunday, as I mentioned. And it's a celebration of two things. The Jews thought it was the anniversary time of the year that the Old Testament law was given by God. 
at about this time of the year. So they would celebrate God giving his law. But they also celebrate because now this was the end of the wheat harvest and they would come and instead of waving different sheaths or different pieces of the wave, they would have made it into a loaf of bread and they would wave this loaf of bread showing that all that's been collected has given, been enough that they were able to get their sustenance, their food stuff, and they've been united together in this plan of God. It pictures that all of a sudden, all, when the Spirit comes, all are united together into one. All those different pieces are brought into one. And so God is following this calendar plan. Just to give, give illustration, what, what thought is this is God gave this whole plan, this whole calendar system years and years before it even took place. And yet he's following it. He's bringing it to pass to symbolize Jesus Christ. Point people to Jesus Christ. Point them that he's the Savior. Point to them that he's the Passover Lamb. That he is the one who is resurrected and give them hope. The whole idea is God has this all planned to exalt Christ. Does God have plans in your life to exalt Christ? Can you look back and see how God worked a calendar to bring you to the point where you got saved? I see in my life, I can look back and say, this is exactly what happened in my family's life. That God had a plan for us, this redemption plan, and he worked it in such a way that all of a sudden my family was ripe for the picking, if we can put it that way. So when we were there growing up in Minnesota, we had this gas station, and we had heard, my dad had heard the gospel, and he had rejected it. But all of a sudden in 73, this preacher gets a flat tire just down the street from our gas station. There's nobody in between us in his flat tire. How is it that he got this flat tire right close to our gas station and they had to pull in there? Do you think God worked this out? And then he starts witnessing to my dad, who my dad says, I don't want to hear it. Go and talk to somebody else. And the preacher says, can I go to that home next door? Sure, that's where my mom was. I don't get that. So dad sends... Dad sends the preacher to my mom, and my mom, who is just, she's, this is January 3rd, and she is brokenhearted because events had happened in her church where she was going to. Two of the preachers that she had gone to for confession, they had both run off with some of the ladies of the community. And so my mom was just decimated. She was just defeated. She was desperately saying, what is truth? How can these men tell me I'm forgiven when they're living in sin? And so her heart was just broken with what she had been trusting and very open. So on that day that that preacher gets a flat tire just close to our gas station, has to come in. My dad says, go talk to somebody. He comes and talks to my mom whose heart was just desperately seeking for truth. Did God coordinate that? God, did God coordinate where he put you when all of a sudden you were exposed to the gospel? Or you may have been in school. You may have been in a situation in your life where all of a sudden things weren't going great. Some of you have even come to a situation where you've come to know Christ because you've had some, some tragedy, some event, some illness, some death in the family. And all of a sudden, all of those made your heart tender where you weren't before. Or maybe there was a, there was a situation where you all of a sudden ran into a neighbor who just moved in and who befriended you. They had something you didn't have. Or some coworker started sharing with you and you got stuck with them. And you had no choice but to listen to them, talk about Jesus, and then your heart was softened. 
God works different ways in different events to make sure that as his calendar is moving along, he is bringing us to a point of being saved. You know, God could have even arranged for you to be here at this morning, at this moment, so that you would hear Jesus Christ is the Savior who died for you. That Jesus Christ is the one who wants to give you eternal life. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come unto the Father but by him. And so God is giving you that opportunity for you to hear the gospel, to respond to his redemption plan. It is no mistake. Our God coordinates events according to a calendar that works best to point us to Jesus Christ. The Jews, um, not the Jews, the Greeks years ago had a God that they called Cacaeus. This God was also called the God of opportunity. Do you notice his wonderful tuft at the front of his head? Do you see that? Okay. Yes, I know you're going to say I'm, I'm associated with a demon. Okay. This God was pictured as bald in the back totally with this long tuft in the front. And the whole idea is that he would have wings on his sandals and he would go quickly and you better grab opportunity before it's gone. Because once it passes you by, there's nothing to grab onto. So what he, their point was, your opportunities may be limited. It may be limited for you to, be, for you to hear the gospel because you don't know what tomorrow holds. It is appointed unto man once to, and after that the judgment. We don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. So the opportunity is to respond and to say, if you're not saved, get saved. That's what God has brought you here for. That's how God is working in a, in a providential way for you to hear the truth. And if you're born again, God is saying, hey, listen, take the opportunity to share the gospel because you don't know when opportunity passes you by. Take advantage of God placing you at certain moments in certain situations to share when somebody's heart may be extremely tender and you don't even know it. So what you need to do is to realize that our God has working and is working a plan to bring about his redemptive plan. But I want you to learn something else about Pentecost, what it shows. It is the day that God fulfilled a personal promise to his disciples. And this is important for every single one of us. This is the, the meat, the heart of what happens there in that chapter. Is God is fulfilling a promise. Jesus had said to the disciples before he left, when I leave, I'm going to send you another comforter. He told them that this comforter will come and he will abide with you forever. He told them that he shall be in you. He told them that he will not leave them comfortless, but he said, it is necessary for me to go away. It's expedient that I go away because if I don't go away, the comforter can't come. So we know Jesus ascended into heaven. Forty days after he resurrected, he is gone. And he said to them that last moment before he ascended, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Why is that? He went on, he said, wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me for John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. What I have promised you the night before I, I died, I promised to send a comforter. When he comes, he's going to baptize you. It's going to be a work that he's going to do spiritually in you. And I promise that I'm going to send him when I get to heaven. And so what happens in the book of Acts, okay, the Holy Spirit who is going to come for the first time. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, just let me do a little bit of history lesson. Was there a Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes. Did he do work in the Old Testament? 
Yes, he did. He was involved in the creation. He was involved with convicting men before the flood. He was involved with coming upon those who built the tabernacle and then the temple, giving them special abilities or increasing their abilities. He came on Joshua. He came on Samson. He came upon other of the judges. He came upon Saul. He came upon David. And so people that were in special positions or prophets, the Spirit would come upon them and then he would enable them to do their task. But what Jesus is promising is something different. Not a different Holy Spirit, but something more than what they had in the Old Testament. He is saying that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, he would come and go. In the Old Testament, only on certain people. It could be just the teacher. It could be the, the prophet. Or they were doing a special task. But then he could be removed. Even David prayed this when he says, remove not thy spirit from me. And so not all the believers had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They didn't always, those who had them didn't have them all the time. What Jesus is saying to his disciples, he says this is a new covenant and part of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit's going to do something he's never done before. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to stay with you all the time, 24-7. He's going to live within you. He's not just going to come and help you beside you, but he's going to be within your body. He's going to unite us with Jesus, put us into the body of Christ that's talking about we are baptized into Christ. There's a spiritual union, the relationship that the Holy Spirit makes between us and Christ, and it's going to be in every single believer. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians where he says we are all baptized with the Spirit. He's writing to people who aren't even spiritual. Many people in the church of Corinth, they were, they were called babes, they were called carnal, and yet they have the baptism of the Spirit. This is because at Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled his work of doing, giving them the Spirit of God to do the work of God. Remember we talked about this about five weeks ago on this very time. We said that in the military, they give not only the training, but they also give the men the equipment. It would be silly for our government to train a pilot and then say, go buy your own plane. It'd be silly to train somebody to work on a ship and say, go buy your own ship. It'd be silly to train them with weapons and then say, you're on your own, get your own weapon. Our government does the right thing. They train them and they equip them. Jesus trained the disciples and he says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you to be your equipping, to be your empowering. And so he said, I'm going to send the Spirit when I go and he's going to come permanently on all of you and he's going to be there. And he promised this. Pentecost is the fulfillment of that promise. It is the moment that Jesus sent his Spirit so that everybody after that has the Spirit. Years ago, when we were, we weren't even in this section, we were in that section of the building. When we were building that section, there was nothing here. None of these homes over on this side. They stopped down here, but just the two at that end. There weren't any homes over there. There weren't any developments in between Chestnut and Walnut Street. So we were at the far edge of the city at that point. And so when we built this building, we had to work with the city that they would run the sewer lines and the water lines all along Walnut Street and then also to bring us up into this area. And that's like a town that all of a sudden they say we're going to put in a water system. And they build it. Everybody who's there at that time gets connected to it. But what about people who built since then? Are they connected to the same water system? The answer is absolutely. We helped design our, we helped to get it contracted that it was put all along Walnut Street. So all these other homes that have come in, when they come in, they were able to tie into what was already in place. That's you and me. We're the latest homes. 
at Pentecost, the entire system was put in. And all the believers living at that time, they got the Spirit. Ever since then, those of us who come along and build, we get added to the system. And so the Spirit of God is in all of us doing this great work with Jesus said, hey listen, I promise I'm going to send him. And he did. Can you think of any other promise Jesus made his disciples? Are there any other promises? I will come again. Is he going to do it? What else did he promise you? Eternal life. I give unto them eternal. Is he going to save you forever and ever? Or is he going to cut you off? You get saved forever. What did he promise you about prayer? If you ask? Okay. What did he promise you in regards to abiding? I will abide with you forever. What did he say about joy? Unspeakable joy. We can, we can go on. We can talk about all these different things that Jesus said that he's going to give you, that he promised every single one of you. If you sacrifice for the Lord, I'm going to increase that sacrifice multiple. I'll make you fishers of men. I will have my joy. You'll get answered prayers. If you seek my kingdom, I will make sure all your needs are met. I'm with you always. He made a promise to them that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit, and he did. Jesus keeps his promises. That's the point we see. That Jesus fulfills those promises. Number three, what we see in this passage is the beginning of the local church. Pentecost is the day that not only did God follow a calendar to to exalt Christ, but he also kept his promise and he also began the church. This is so simple that we go back to that idea of those two loaves that the priest would wave when it came to the Feast of Pentecost. What were the two loaves? that he would lift up, that were baked now, and that, that were into all those different grains were into these loaves. What was he doing when he waved two of them together? What was he picturing? There is a unity of what two groups of people? The Jews and the Gentiles. And it's manifested at Pentecost. It is the beginning of what we call being put into the, to the body of Jesus Christ. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile anymore. It's exactly what he wrote about as one, as the body is one and has lots of members. All the members are in that one body being many. We are in the body of Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into that body. And been made to drink of that same spirit. So it's the beginning of the church. So when we come to Pentecost, we celebrate the birthday of the church. We also do this. We also see that it's the day that God used ordinary people to do an extraordinary task. It's phenomenal what happens. You see, at the beginning of this chapter, they're there, and they are working, and the Spirit is moving amongst them, and they're going to see some amazing things happen. Follow along quickly as we just highlight a few verses here. They're in that upper room or probably that porch of Solomon's porch at the temple. And all of a sudden, what do they, what's the first supernatural sign that something is happening? Look at, look at the text. The first thing that tells them something odd is happening. There's the sound. It makes it clear. It says there's this sound of a rushing wind. Okay, all of a sudden you've got this. It doesn't say that their, you know, their tuft is blowing around. It doesn't say that they're falling against the wall in this wind tunnel. But it says the spirit is blowing. By the way, same word in the Hebrew and the Greek. For the spirit is the same word for wind. 
So what happens is all of a sudden you have this sound filling the house like this rushing wind. Then you have something else that happens. You have a sound and then what else? Tongues of fire. You have something that's very visible. You have something seen. Why would God use fire? Is fire ever used to symbolize God's presence? Oh, in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle. There's the Shekinah glory above, uh, above the tabernacle. Okay, the burning bush. There was God in, in that burning bush. There's a pillar of fire. So you have that, that symbolism of God several times in the Old Testament. So they would understand this. They hear this wind. They see these, these tongue-like flames above their heads. And they're sitting above them. And it's an appearance that they would understand. And then there's a third supernatural sign. What is it? Okay, there's a speech thing that takes place. All of a sudden, there's this verbal sign that they start speaking in these tongues. Now, let me just, we're going to get into this and spend after, after uh, uh, we get into September and do other things in between. We're going we're gonna to examine this more in depth. But they began to speak with other tongues. These were not, these were known languages. It wasn't ecstatic speech. How do we know that? Okay, they weren't known to the speaker, but the people who heard them knew that they were speaking languages. To catch that in the verse, we hear them in our own... What's your Bible read? Okay, we hear... Some of you might have tongues, you might have languages. The word that is used there, we hear them in our own dialects. Very clearly, it's a language. So at sometimes in this text, it's calling them language, and sometimes the word is dialects. These are known speeches, uh, known languages. And so they even list off several of them, 15 of them, and they say it's even the dialect that is sp- being spoken where we were born. So this isn't some ecstatic thing that's happening. They are speaking. All of a sudden it would be as if I was speaking to you if you were a crowd of people. We were living in China. All of a sudden I'm speaking to you in Mandarin Chinese. And I don't have a clue uh, how to speak it. And so you would all of a sudden be able to hear and understand that's the idea of what happened at that day. And so they're speaking in these different languages. Did you catch what they were saying? It's said that what they were doing when they were speaking in these various tongues, it says in the text, they were talking about the wonderful works of God. They are praising. They're not preaching. They're praising God at this moment. And they're, they're giving glory to God, speaking about his, his deeds, his doing. And what happens is this large crowd immediately comes. Now, I don't know what all brought that crowd. It's noised abroad. It's phonos abroad that they hear this. Did, they, did the crowd hear the rushing wind? Did all of a sudden it spread through that temple area that quickly? Something's going on over there. There's, those guys are speaking and different, people are gathering. I don't know. But the crowd all of a sudden gets there and the crowd's reaction that we read, some were confused, some are amazed, some are marveling, some are doubting, some are, do- are mocking, some are going to be saying, hey, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? These are Galileans. What do they mean by that? Well, if you lived back in that day and you lived in Galilee, you were a second-class Jew. You weren't as educated as the Judeans. 
You didn't come to the temple as often as the, as the Judeans. In fact, remember what they had said? Can any good thing come out of that region of Galilee and out of Nazareth? They were looked down upon. They were considered the, oh, what would we use? I, anything I use is going to be offensive. Um, you know, they, these were the backwards people. The untrained people. And, they're, and they know it. They can tell by their dress because they had distinct dress. They're looking and they say, these are Galileans. How is it that they can speak in foreign tongues? All of them. Galileans aren't educated people. They're not trained this well. Something's going on and God's using it to get their attention. He's using these supernatural signs. And so what happens is their response by some is they got to be drunk. You know what's amazing to me? If you're sitting there and listening to somebody speak in your foreign language, you would say the only reason you do it is they're drunk. That's a silly reaction. But for those who didn't understand what was being said, they, they assume they're drunk. And Peter responds with common sense. Peter says, they're not drunk, why not? It's too early in the morning. Okay, He says to him, it's 9 a.m. Who's drunk at 9 a.m.? Well, we know there could be somebody, but okay. But reality is, most the bars aren't open at 9 a.m. And so he says, this is too early. They're not drunk. And then he goes on and says, and the key phrase that he gives that we're going to look at tonight, this is that, is what he says in verse, uh, the following verses. This is that, and he explains. But you and I know what it is, and we'll, we'll, dis, we'll uh, discuss it even further. He preaches to them that whole message, and at the end of the message, after he preaches, it says verse 37. Okay, let's go to verse 36. That's his conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus. What's your next phrase read? Whom you crucified. Talk about pointed preaching. He says, he has made Jesus both. Lord is the Adonai. It's a word for God. Used very commonly at that time. He is both God and Christ. Now when the people heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, what must I do to be saved? And Peter responds and he sp- talks to them, which we're going to dissect in a few weeks about this idea of repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. And then you jump down, verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word, they're baptized. In other words, they come to Christ. They believe in Christ and follow in that baptism that Jesus has established. And the same day, how many people responded? 3,000. 3,000 people get saved at the preaching of some hicks. How is that? God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So, of all the miracles that day that people get excited about, I, I don't understand this part. In Christendom, the miracles that everybody gets excited about is the tongues. But there was other miracles. Don't they count? I think the greatest miracle in all of this was the salvation of 3,000 souls. People responding who could have been the very people involved with weeks before saying, crucify him. We have no king but what changed their hearts? It's the Spirit of God working through ordinary people. It's ordinary people doing a job where these people come to a point and they say, I want, to re- I want to get changed. I want what you have. I need something different. And they receive the word and they get saved. That to me is amazing. 
oh, this is me. Now, maybe you don't think this way. I wish 3,000 would get saved every week. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be great if that were happening all the time? And so we look at this and we ask these questions. Can we have another Pentecost today? And I'm talking about that day, that situation, and the answer is no. No. We can't have that Pentecost in that situation today. It's not going to repeat itself. That would be like us saying, can we have another Bethlehem where the baby comes? Let's have another Calvary. No, it's done. It was, it was that day God did that work that was happening on that moment. Can the church be birthed again? No, it was birthed. It's not necessary to have that another Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, which came for the first time in the way that he works in us, he came that day. And he's, he's there. For us to say, let's go back to Pentecost. It would be like for us to say, oh, we're going to pray and get together so that we as the United States can become free of Great Britain. Right now. We are already free. We've been free for, for years. We are born in this country that got its freedom back in 1776. So we are like the people who are, I'm sorry, in comparison, the Spirit came in that time, we get the benefits of it. So we don't need to repeat that day anymore. It's already the blessings are coming and following. But here's the question. That was the last Pentecost that was going to be that way. Can we be used today to do extraordinary things? That answer is... Yes. Well, let me, I, 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 maybe I should have started this way. Are you an ordinary people? It sounds pompous. Are we just common folk? Yes. Can we be used to do something uncommon? Yes. So we look back and say, okay, we can't have that same thing. But we've got the same baptism they do. But there is something else that happened to them that day that may not be in your life. There was something else. Back up. Did you catch it where he says that he was going to send them the baptism of the Spirit, which came, but something came for them along with it? Verse 4. Did you catch it in verse 4? They not only got the baptism of the Spirit, but what else did they get? The filling of the Spirit. There is a big difference, Okay. What happened to them is they were all not only baptized, but they're filled with the Spirit. Is the baptism and the filling of the Spirit the same thing? No. No. Not in Scripture. Okay? Let me, let me show you this. Just as a simple chart. Stay with me for a second. The baptism of the Spirit is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. It's elaborated. We already looked at that. Okay? The filling of the Spirit is talked about in Ephesians chapter 5. There's a big difference between those two verses. The big difference between those verses is the verbs in 1 Corinthians 12 compared to the verbs in Ephesians 5. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's a statement that's done in the past tense. In Ephesians 5.18, it's a command to be done over and over again. This one, once and done. That one, you have to keep after. Let me see if I can chart it this way. The baptism of the Spirit was never commanded. 
It was promised but not commanded. In other words, there's nothing we do beyond accepting Christ then it happens to us. As well, it happens to all the believers. All the New Testament believers that get tied to the Spirit, they're like those who get tied to this water system. Even carnal Christians are baptized in the Spirit. It's just one time in the past, according to the verbiage. And it happened to every one of you who are born again. It will happen to you if today you get saved, you will also get the baptism of the Spirit. It's never repeated on any believer ever stated that it's repeated in the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, some of the same people here who are filled with the Spirit, they also get filled with the Spirit in chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 13. So the filling of the Spirit happens to believers more than once. As well, it's commanded that we do something. We're involved with this. We make it happen by saying, going to, allowing Him to do this work. Is something we have to be engaged in. Not all Christians are filled with the Spirit because he's telling them in Ephesians 5, you need to be filled with the Spirit, which means some of them weren't. As well, we get this idea, it is something that happens over and over and over again. If, if we can just do it this way, when you get baptized in the Spirit, you get the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gets you. And there's a huge difference. You may have the Spirit living within you, but you're not yielded to Him. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're yielding yourself. So this idea, when you are baptized, you're put into the body of Christ. You're all of a sudden united with Jesus in this spiritual entity, this body. You're united with one another so that you can meet a perfect stranger and you just sense something, we have a connection here. That comes by the baptism. But when the filling takes place, you're giving your body to Jesus. You're yielding yourself, your speech, your mind, your activities. If you haven't been baptized according to Romans, you're not even saved. But when you go to Ephesians, you find out that the Spirit of God helps you when you're filled with Him to serve. So there's a big difference. And so for a lot of people, they don't understand that they need to be filled with the Spirit. And what happens is the Holy Spirit who lives within you when you're filled with him, you're basically just saying, I'm yours. You're yielding to the Spirit. Be yielded to the Spirit is the idea. Literally, it's plenero is the word. Let the Spirit move you. Let him guide you. Let him control you. I saw that this week. I, I, any of you have problems getting around town with construction? Okay, so we went this way to miss it and we ran into it. So we came back this way to miss it, ran into it. And so we're going back to the original way and waiting line. And there was this little girl on a bike. And she was, she was, her legs, she wasn't pedaling. Her legs were out like this. And her daddy was holding the bike and she was yelling, I'm riding! Look, daddy, I'm riding! Who was really moving her? Dad. But was she engaged with it somehow? She was there. Okay, But dad was operating the thing. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're like this little girl saying, move me wherever you want. Empower me. Guide me. Direct me. But you can stop it. And some of you know this has happened. You've quenched or you've grieved the Spirit. You, you, can, quench, you can grieve the Spirit by the way you speak. When you start cussing, cursing, you're grieving the Spirit. When you let it give in to your anger towards brother or sister, you're grieving the Spirit. 
When all of a sudden you're, you're telling the dirty jokes, you're grieving the spirit. You bother him. Quenching is the idea of what that means is you're putting down the flames. You're putting down what's being moved. When, when you're under conviction and you hear a message about praying more and you just say, oh, that's for somebody else. You quench the spirit. Oh, I, you know, somebody else should go and, and witness. You're quenching the spirit. When the spirit of God says to you, you need to apologize. And in your mind you go, no, they need to come first. You just quench the spirit. When all of a sudden the spirit of God is prompting you to change, to do something. And you say, nah, I'm too busy. I don't have time to visit widows. My life is too busy. You quench the spirit. And so you can, you can stop the filling, the guiding, the directing, the moving of the spirit in your heart. And then you remain carnal or babes. General William Booth, this guy who started what we know as today as Salvation Army, when he started, it was an amazing outreach to the, uh, to the ghetto areas throughout London. And they were asking him, how is it that God was able to use you in such a marvelous way? He responded, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains, greater opportunities. But from the day that I got the poor of London in my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus would do, I made up my mind God would have all of me. That's being spirit-filled. And one preacher who knew him said, I learned from William Booth the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. So what do we do? Hey, let me, let me see if I can do a silly illustration. How do I get the air out of here? <laughs> and what happens? The air is right there. Okay? The easiest way to get the air out of here is to do what? Stop, stop. The air's gone. This is you. Inside is some emptiness, lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of service. Struggling, battling. Things are difficult. You're looking and you're saying, I want to be able to do more for the Lord. How do you get to the point you can do more for the Lord? Let the Spirit of God fill you. Let him take over. Speak when he says speak. Confess when he says confess. Love when he says love. Forgive when he says forgive. Train when he says train. Read your Bible when he says read your Bible. Go to church when church is opened. Be yielded to the Spirit. Do what he wants. Let him control you. And what happens? You're more usable. All of a sudden, God's able to do great things by you just yielding to him time and again. Daily, throughout the day, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled again with the Spirit. Be yielded to the Spirit is the idea. Be yielded and yielded and yielded and yield some more. Just say, Spirit of God, use me. And watch what God can do when you yield to say, I'm going to serve, I'm going to teach because I think he may want me to teach. I'm going to give out the, the tracts because I think he wants me to do that. I, I'm going to visit some of the widows because I know he wants me to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to have, have a time with my family where we read the Bible and pray together. Watch what he does. Watch what he does when all of a sudden you say, I'm going to get involved with an outreach like neighborhood night. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to be an encouragement and I'm going to pray for others within the body of Christ. I'm going to sing when we sing, I'm going to really sing next week. 
And I'm going to really worship and not just go through the motions. And watch how the Spirit of God will change you, move you, use you, an ordinary person, to do extraordinary things. Question is, are you filled with the Spirit? Now it's time to say, yes, Lord, if I'm not yielded, I want to be yielded. I want to just give you my all. Let you have your way with me. And as we sing this morning, we're going to have staff go to those doors right over there. And if you're here this morning and you do not know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, you don't know Christ is your Savior, you've been trusting baptism or church or something else, go and talk to one of the people over here. There's several rooms down at the end of the hallway. Just go over there and they'll take you in a private room and show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. You're a believer. You're a child of God. Are you yielded? Filled. Are you controlled by? Filled. Are you surrendered? Filled. By the Spirit of God. Join with me as we sing. You may have to pray and confess before you sing with us. But make sure you are filled with the Spirit or yielded to Him before you leave today.